not here. If you get a chance, just give Christy a little high five thank you for all of her hard work for spearheading the uh, playground uh, uh, project. It was a massive undertaking. I know a ton of you volunteered, and I am happy to say and to thank God it is done. <laughs> It was, <laughs> when we came the other day, uh, we, I saw this mountain of wood chips 15 foot high, and I thought, this is never going to get done before Sunday, but she got it done, so she shoveled it all herself, just so you know. She's a legend in here. Um, so thank you, Christy, for doing that, um, and then just I want to welcome anybody who's new. If you haven't been here, if I haven't met you, uh, or Chad, or any of our staff, we'd love to meet you and connect and find out how we can get you a little bit more connected within our church here. Um, let's pray and we'll get started. God, we thank you for today. We love you. You are so good. God, I thank you for Luke chapter 19 and the principles and the values that Christ you teach in here. And God, I just ask that through this, not one person will leave here the same way in these values and these principles that Christ is reiterating in us as his followers, God, that we walk out more inspired, we walk out more passionate, and we walk out more bold to share the gospel with those around us and to fulfill the purpose of Christ's death, burial, resurrection for the world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are getting close to Easter, like Chad was saying. Now is probably a really good time to begin just praying, God, who do you have on my heart to bring to a service or at least to encourage to go to a service somewhere? Uh, we would love to have them here. Uh, we're going to have a few services so that way we can accommodate different times and, and obviously the amount of people we can have in here. But it, it, it is one of those times where most people are open to coming to hear a church service. Whether it's tradition, we don't care, we'll take them. Or whether it's just um, maybe they're moms guilty we don't care we'll take them right we would love to have them here to hear the gospel and share the good news of christ on easter and so i wanted to read this right now because jesus in chapter 18 or luke in chapter 18 is highlighting something jesus is is setting into motion which we'll be getting into into easter week and it's this easter morning is not far from now so Luke is, is, is letting his readers know they've been on this incredible journey of the life of Jesus. And he's now beginning to reveal Christ is that this is coming to an end. But it's the end to an age and the beginning of a new age. But it's not far off. They're on their way from the Galilean area and region. They're heading towards a city that's only 20 miles outside of Jerusalem where ultimately Jesus will be crucified and will rise from the dead not long from now. And these disciples have been on this journey and this ride for a time. And they, it, it, it's like, uh, I can imagine it's like when, when things are just going gangbusters, you can't really in that moment imagine its end. You can't imagine it transforming into something else. And you surely don't believe Jesus when he says, this will all come to an end. But it won't end for me, obviously, and it will not end for you. And so he's trying to get them on the same page that they are not going to just finish here. They're going to begin the work that Christ has for them. And it echoes to us today. But Jesus is going to change humanity's relationship with the Creator forever. 
in this moment. Let me read it. It'll be on the screen. It's in Luke chapter 18. You can open up your Bibles uh, if you want to follow along. I'm reading in the ESV. It's starting in verse 31. We'll go through 34 here. And it says this in verse 31. And, take the tw- sorry, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem which was an upward hike, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, if they know their prophetic history, they know that this this, uh, Son of Man is going to, this Messiah is going to bring freedom. It's going to let the captive free. It's going to heal people and break bonds and connect them with God, their creator. So they know something big is coming, and they know he's going to accomplish it there. They just don't know how, or they don't believe what he's saying. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, you're telling them something, but they don't believe what you're saying, and they conclude their own thing about it? Have you ever been in one of those conversations? Right? It's very frustrating, isn't it? It's like, no, believe what I'm saying. But they can't do it, because they can't bring themselves to bear it, I think. Uh, Verse 32, it says, And he will be delivered over, meaning himself, to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit on. But after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. It says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he had said. Jesus is ultimately moving and we'll read through the rest of Luke in this way, that he's moving to his ultimate purpose. Sometimes we have to step back and realize that Jesus, he didn't come just to be a really good example. He didn't come just to have really wise sayings. He didn't come just to make some people feel good for a little while. Jesus ultimately came to save us. We were dead in our sin. You were goners, immobile. There was no hope. There was nowhere to go. We were feeling around in the dark, looking for something significant, trying to connect with this gap that's been there since the fall. And Jesus ultimately comes to open the door. I think we have to appreciate that coming into Easter, that there was a door that was shut, and that door is no longer shut. That there's freedom and there's salvation and there's not just hope for today, but there's hope for eternity. My dad used to have this saying, and this probably will speak a little bit more to the message of the Jesus is trying to get across. He used to have this saying, and he said, you know, when you borrow something, return it better than you received it. Did anybody have that saying? I think my dad was saying that for his stuff that I borrowed, but he was training me. When you borrow my stuff, bring it back better, you know, like if you take the car and fill it all the way up, right? And it was just kind of one of those very basic principles. But if you've ever had somebody borrow something of yours and they brought it back worse, or they borrowed it, and then you find out they didn't even use it, but you could have used it, but they just sat in the garage the whole time. They didn't do anything with it. There's something about that principle I've, I've, I've always tried to keep that in mind. That's why I very rarely borrow something from somebody because <laughs> I do not want to do all the work as much to return it. But I will do it if I borrow it because my dad instilled that in us as kids. I think Jesus in these next parables especially is saying, if you've been giving something so great, such a great gift, why would you not put it to work and return it even better 
than what God gave you, meaning the good news. Why would you return it without it being shared, spread? That's how you put the good news to work, for God at least. I titled this uh, message Willful Obedience because sometimes we don't want to obey and we white and white knuckle it. But to get to the places as a believer that you willfully obey, you want to obey God and what his calling is on your life. And I think ultimately the whole focus will be to think about this is why our responses, stewards, matter to God. I think sometimes I can get there too where I think that I can kind of slough off the fact that one day I'm going to stand before God. It's, it, it should never be lost on me to, to realize that one day I'm going to meet my maker. Either he returns or I meet him in the next life. And one day God seems to be in, in generally about accounting at this point. I'm not going to be able to bring spreadsheets to God and say, look at all these things I did in my life for me. I'm not going to, he's not going to read those records. I'm not going to say, look at all these great things I accomplished in this world, but really none of it was for you. He's, he's not going to even check those books. He will have an accounting that's very similar to this parable we're going to read. And I have to bring us and root us back and, and get us sober about the fact that God is going to meet you one day. And what's the account we want to give to him? I think of this, that we're all kind of farmers on a plot of land. When you became a believer, God's like, okay, good. Now here's some land, and I want you to cultivate the land. And we, a lot of us, when we first become Christians, you're like, I, I, but I don't know how to farm. Like, I, like I had an apartment downtown. <laughs> I, I don't know how to farm. I, I, would, I don't even know what the seed does. I mean, do we eat these? I mean, do I put them in a popcorn thing? Does it, what does it do? That's how we first feel when we're Christians, and I totally understand it. We're, we're a little bit kind of out of our league in some ways, at least out of our, uh, uh, an area that we knew. But we're, we're given a plot, and God says, you're like farmers. You need to go cultivate the land. It would be an absolute shame for the community around you and the people of, this, uh, of your region or world around you if you didn't grow anything. And it would be a shame for you if you didn't plant. But I, I think that ultimately we are all going to be a count or have a count one day when God returns and said, how's my land? And you're like, well, I don't know. Like, I built this cool fort over here and it was great. I, I actually sold some parts off, <laughs> made some money, you know, went on vacation. Lost it in Vegas. I, who knows? But at the end of the day, God is giving us a portion of stewardship in our life. That portion of land is the stewardship that God's given you to have. And how did you cultivate it? Did you dig ditches? Did you till it? Did you irrigate it? Did you, did you fertilize it? Uh, did you tend to it? Did you grow I think this is, in a way, how God will bring account to our actions. But think about farming. If you're a believer, a new believer, or you've never put yourself in that mindset of cultivating, it's fine. So what? You're from downtown L.A. or downtown Long Beach. you got a plot of land, and you're like, I, can I watch a YouTube video on how to plant seeds? Maybe. You can. But there's other farmers out there. They'll help you plant the seed. They'll show you what to do. 
They'll give you some experience, like, oh, when the wind's like this, that means this certain kind of thing's blowing in, and you don't want to plant during that season. And when you till, you got to go this deep down when you dig the trenches, and here's how you get water in through regularly. And when you're looking for this for growth, this is what your church community does. And so you, you do not have to be intimidated that you're alone, that God just plop, plopped you out there and said, get going for the kingdom. He's given us each other to do that, to help cultivate it. You have some seasoned veteran farmers in here who can help you cultivate. If you never have put to work the plot of land God's given you, i.e. the stewardship of your entire life, then you can start farming for the gospel. He highlights, Luke highlights, two very important values of Jesus' ministry in chapter 19. I recommend that you read 18 because it's a little bit of a buildup. And then all of 19, because this is where we'll see kind of the close to the end of Jesus's teaching in a way, ministry, and even some healings happening and things like that. But this parable is so important, and I just titled this in my message, how, I could, how we could think of it, this value Jesus is trying to communicate, is if you're going to invest, invest with God. A lot of us do this. We pray and go, God, show me the right decisions to make. And we consult God. And imagine, if God gave you advice on what to invest in, would you not take it? It's a guarantee. It's the best investment. If you said, God, should I get out of Tesla now or not? Should I, should I, should I put more into Bitcoin or not? We, we would pray. If God gave us the answer, we're going all in. We bet everything on it. But God wants us to invest for him because everything's going to pass away. Everything is, that's not of God will not be around in the future. But I, I think this is true. Ultimately, when you think about investment, the number one thing that you have to invest is who you are. God, Christ didn't come for stuff. He didn't come for anything other than you, his greatest creation, you. And he wants to take the you he made and put it to work for him. I think he's gifted us with talent, he's gifted us with time, he's gifted us with treasure, more than we can even imagine. You are so uniquely you, I wonder why God made you that way. I know your spouse is like, yeah, why did he make you that way? This isn't a gift, trust me. Like, he made you, you're unique, you're like your thumbprint, no one else has it, you're different. Why did he make you that way? I think it's important to figure those things out. And I, I think this is true, and it'll be on the screen. We steward these gifts well when they're invested into true riches. That's when we're stewarding well. If you have a great voice, why did God create and give you that voice? To use it in any way possible for him to bring good news and hope to others, whether it's cheering someone up with singing or whether it's somehow singing through gospel message. We don't know, but some way, somehow, if you're driven and you're, and you're an entrepreneur, why are you that way? Everybody says they'd like to start a business, and everybody says they want to be entrepreneurial because they want the end goal, but entrepreneurs are geared a certain way. Why did he make you that way? And for what purpose, and are we stewarding it well? If you have a caring heart and you just love to care for people, why did he make you that way? And how do you put it to work for the gospel? 
You're sitting on a plot of land. What are we doing with it? I think we all have a purpose. We're all unique, and we all possess gifts from God. Big time. What has he called you to do with those gifts? Listen to this passage. If you doubt whether you were so unique, so different, if you doubt that you're just like another cog in the system, or if you're just somebody just roaming around and nobody cares about you, or you don't think you're special, Psalms 30, uh, 139, 13, it says, For you formed, David is saying this to God, you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Listen to the way he phrases these things. I praise you, for I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intrinsically woven in the depths of the earth. Wow. If you just walk around thinking that you're worthless, you're wrong. If you think you have nothing to contribute, you're wrong. I don't know how God will use you, but I think you know you better than me, and I think God knows how he made you, so put it to work. We're supposed to put it to work. My mom, when we were growing up, uh, you know those, is it called cross-stitching? The, the, the things where you, like, you make a little, <laughs> help me out. <laughs> mom, I'm sorry. I don't, re I don't remember the name of it. I remember just one of the things my mom had us do back when we didn't have cell phones is where we did cross-stitching. And uh, we would make this thing, and you could see where your cross-stitching was getting off a little bit, and then you correct it, and you wanted to make it just like this image. And we all made our cross-stitch, and when we were all done, it wasn't just someone's thing we found somewhere. It was my creation. And I was so proud of that little, I don't know, it was like a kid opening a present or sitting by a present, and it was such a big deal. And I was like, have you seen my cross-stitch? Perfect. You know what I mean? Like how I chose those colors versus my brother's, his are terrible. And that's why he won't do anything in life. You know what I mean? Like, I was, I was just a very competitive cross-stitcher. God intricately puts you together. And if you can remember doing something like that, imagine how much God intricately knows you uniquely, specifically. Why would he do that? For no reason? For a purpose, to be put to work for him you're made by God, for God, for his purpose. That's it. I think mankind is searching for meaning desperately. I, I've been really troubled by what I see nowadays is that people are going, do I have a purpose? What's my reason for being here? In some ways, the, the sadly, the more you see it, there's a little bit of a mild epidemic going on right now of people feeling meaningless and purposeless and have no reason for even living. I don't think they realize Psalms 139. And I tell you what, if you're in here and you feel that way, Listen, God has given you the greatest purpose, an adventure that you can't even imagine. People you'll meet that you never even knew existed that will bring you into their life and you'll find out something new, a place he may send you, a community that will bring you. Next thing you know, you're here and you thought, how could I ever be here? I never thought I would be doing this. There is a purpose for you, but it's a huge problem today and the world needs it more than ever. I wrote 
I translated my own scripture here. I've never done it, but I'm going to read it for you. It's in Proverbs. You know the passage that, you know, without vision, the people perish? I, I see it this way. Without purpose that we're definitely stuck in sinking sand. You flail around, and the more you search for something else, you just fall deeper. You have to have purpose. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what are you stewarding with what God's given you? And if you have purpose, you can really put it to work for the kingdom. Let's read in Luke 19. This is the parable. It's in the ESV. We'll start with verse 11. And it'll be on the screens. Uh, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. A parable is a, a physical description of something, an analogy of something, but really is reflecting a heavenly principle, a spiritual principle, so we can easily grab it. And it says... Um, uh, because they were nearing Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They're thinking their march, they're heading that way, and the kingdom of God is going to appear when they get there. And Jesus has to burst the bubble, and he does it in a parable. And he said in verse 12, therefore, this is the parable, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, we live between the, a kingdom and return. We live right now, currently, in between those two words, right now, currently, until the return. And so he goes off, and then he will return for an account. And you can see Christ as this noble man, if you will. You can see God's return in this kingdom, if you will. But he's using this very known analogy for them to in that day, they were living things like this. And it says in verse 13, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, which is about four months' wage. And he said to them, engage in business until I come home. Meaning, here's a gift. Steward it. Put it to work. Engage in business until I come home. And don't stop until I come home. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Meaning there were people who were like, we don't like this. We want someone else to rule over us, a better ruler than this man. And that's kind of where I feel if we read it in this way, we can see that's why so many people fight against God fight against going out and investing and investing our life for him. We don't like that. God, it's too much pressure for me. I just want to be left alone. I want to come to church, do my thing, and then, and, and then just call it good. Verse 15. When he returned, he received the kingdom that he, uh, and ordered his servants to whom he had given the money called him, uh, sorry, to be called to him. And uh, that he might know what had been gained by doing business. The first came to him and said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Now, those are the words that we want to hear. And, and this is someone who took the, the investment God gave him and put it to the max for, for God. And we hear Paul say this, too. I want to one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant that he writes in the New Testament. So this is a well-done, good servant because you have been faithful with very little. 
You will have authority over ten cities. Now that is quite a trade. Is it not? Okay, you, you, you take this investment and you, you know, turn it into ten times the amount. And uh, you know what? I'm going to give you five cities. You're going to have L.A., you're going to have Long Beach, you're going to have San Diego. What? So we're getting a little bit of like on the other side of the work that we do for God. His love, kindness, generosity on the other side of this. And a second came and saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. It's kind of like my brothers with the cross stitch. They were, I was the best. They were okay, you know. They're only going to get five minas. But he said, hey, great, you're going to be over five cities. And here's where the problem lies with Christians sometimes. This great gift. They all got the equal amount of a gifting. And some put it to work, and some did some, and some did nothing. And here's verse 20, and they came another saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away, hidden in a, in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Now here's this perception of the master. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And so, in, in other words, I'm going to live my way in my life, and then I, I don't trust you. I'm going to just take control of myself. And he said to him, this is the master, I will condemn you with your words, you wicked servant. You, and you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sell? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have at least collected interest? He said to those who stood by watching this happen, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10. He will turn this into 20. I don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. God, God, God has given you so much, and he's given you a purpose, something that gets you up in the morning, something that gets you going through life, something that is bigger than yourself. He wants to trust you with that work. Verse 25, and he said to him, Lord, uh, they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas already. That's not fair. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given more, or more will be given, but the one who has not even what he has is going to be taken away from him. He doesn't realize what he's gambling by just sitting and doing nothing. But as for these enemies of mine, the people who are talking about taking over, the people who are pushing against my rule, here's where it gets very hard. Um, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them to me and slaughter them in front of me. This is a really hard parable. The, the, the value to look at here is to see yourself in one of these servants. You've been given a great gift. Not just your life, your uniqueness, but the, the gospel, life. What do you do with it, with what God has given you? How do you put it to work, or will you just sit and bury it? I'll just say that I don't want to be the one who does nothing and thinks I did a good job by just holding still. Just doing my thing. I have this question I want to ask, and I'll ask it of myself, too. What do you do 
um, or sorry, what do we do for God with what he's given us? We have to ask these questions. What do we do with what he's given us? It's worth asking. Maybe our view of God is wrong like this, guys. Maybe that we are like that servant and we just have this warped view of who God is and we don't really know who he is. And so therefore we do nothing. Maybe we don't believe that we'll see him again, that maybe he gave me this gift. I live it and I live for myself. You know what? Maybe I'll see God. Maybe I won't. I don't know. It's not a good risk to take, I don't think. Maybe you just want to bury the mandate and call it good. Some of us in here, God's given us mandates to go and to do something. We might push it away and push it away and push it away. And maybe that voice gets a little bit more quieter in your life, but you will never be able to ignore its accountability in your life. And I think that ultimately we're going to see the king in this life or the next. You know, how did you invest, I think, will be ultimately the question. It's important. This is an important parable to take to heart. The second part of this, actually, of, the, of chapter 19, takes place before this parable. So I wanted to read the parable first, because I think it gives a lot of light to this story that takes place. And if we can get the idea of this message, of this point, of this story, is this call and response. What do you do when you're called, and how do you respond? Our response to Christ, I think, reflects the revelation of him that we have. How someone is responding, I can, I can see the revelation that they have of who Christ is. How strong it is, how, how much they believe in who the resurrected Christ is and for them and what he's done. How much they realize what they've been released from. Or that they have risen from the dead, literally, spiritually. I think it's important that we do see this. I, um, I think about Christians, and I think, man, you know, I, I can in, encounter some Christians sometimes. Now, we can't be perfect. I know that. But there are some people who claim the name of believer, and I just think, don't claim the name believer. You're not reflecting the resurrection well, right? Our call and response is important, how we respond. A buddy of mine who's a church planner was telling me about this lady that, at this church they were renting. She was one of the, uh, uh, I don't know, one of the leaders of the church, and she came down. She's been there. She leads the Bible studies, does all these things, comes down, and starts fighting with them while he's speaking. Can you imagine that? I, I, Chuck, you would take care of this person. He didn't have anybody. And she came down, started fighting, and then got a fight with his wife and pushed her. In the name of Jesus, of course. I just think, like, where, where's the reflection of Christ there? How big is the revelation you have of him? I don't care how long you've been going to church. That, that's not what counts. The reflection, the response, the call. So Luke 19, 10, 1 through 10 says this. It's a story, a very famous story, Zacchaeus. And it says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, emphasis. Now, I think if you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard teachings about tax collectors, but it was the most shameful job in the ancient world in your region. Because you were ultimately, if you were a province taken over by Rome, you were a traitor to your, to your people. 
You were scum of the earth. You were an outcast. You were instantly deemed a sinner, too. How Rome made its money and how it made life easy in Rome when, when they would, um, uh, wanted their citizens to live burden, tax burden free is they would go to war, they would take over another country, they would pillage the wealth from that country, and they would tax the people so the Romans didn't have to pay that much tax. It was great to be a Roman. And it was not great to be ruled by the Romans. And he was one of the people employed to go around and start collecting taxes for his province. And so he was not considered a good man. The tax rate was about 30 to 50% for everybody. That's doable, right? You know, we can live on that. Sometimes it was more. You were taxed at the road, the ports, the goods, the trades, the port, any port there was, land. You even had to pay a tax to practice your religion. The tax extortion was so high. It was unbelievable. The tax collectors would be in charge of their area or their region. They would pay up front about how much taxes they're going to collect. And then what they did was they go around and collect the taxes. And then if they got anything over the top because people were so generous, they wanted to give them over the top taxes. No. Then they got to keep it. So they became very wealthy people. Very hated. They literally could ruin someone's life. They could tax someone so much that they could never get ahead and eventually starve to death. They could destroy lives. This is not a good man. And not only that, he was the chief tax collector. He was the local mob boss. Caesar was the godfather. And he collected and extorted the businesses and shook them down for their money. And it says he was rich. I think he was rich is put on here for a reason. Because in the previous chapter, 18, it's that famous story of the rich young ruler. And he, and he goes, he wants to follow Jesus, and he does all of the commandments. He's perfect. But he was rich. And Jesus said, there's one thing that possesses you that cannot come with me. You have to give everything away. And not that money was bad. It just possessed him. And that's dangerous. And so Jesus says, do that. And he says... I can't do that. I've got a lot of money. And then a chapter later, we see another rich man. And this man isn't perfect. He's disgusting. He's ruined lives. He's the scum of the earth, but he's a rich man. But yet his response seems to be very, very different. He stewards well in the moment when Christ shows up. He responds to the call, I think, properly. And what is our response when we encounter Christ? Will it be like the rich man? Or will it be like this disgusting, I guess, short sinner here, I guess? Verse 3, and he was seeking to see, Zacchaeus, seeking to see Jesus. Um, <clears throat> but uh, on the account of the crowd, he couldn't see because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him. And for he was about to pass that way. So he's running to see who is Jesus. In verse 5, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up. Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house today. Now, I think this is the only time Jesus invites himself over. And it's pretty great. He's like, hey, you come down. I'm staying at your house. <laughs> it's like, what? But he recognized something 
there. And so he hurried, he came down, and he received Jesus joyfully. There's such a difference between the rich young ruler who had it all together, who checked all the boxes, and this guy who was willing to embarrass himself, climb a tree, run, he, he was like a high official in front of everybody, and then joyfully celebrate Jesus. And then verse 7, and when they saw it, meaning most religious people or people on the outside or any of the followers who are like, hey, tax collectors, we know we're bad. Jesus, what are you doing? They saw it, they grumbled. He had gone to be a guest of the man who was a sinner. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half, here's his response, half of my goods I'm going to give it to the poor. Now listen, this is the man who only took. This is the man who took it while he was dragging you down the road, taking it from you. This is not a giver. This is the response that happens when Christ comes in your life, and the very first thing that happens is he gives. He becomes a giving person. He looks for the other now instead of just taking for himself. And listen to the next part. And if I have defrauded any one of anything I restore it fourfold, which is way more than even required. I think when Christ comes into your life, the response is naturally going to be, how do I give? Who needs me? How do I give to you, God? How do I serve? And how do I restore? Because the kingdom is about restoration. We are called to restore, to reconcile. He's no longer going to watch suffering around him. He's going to do something about it. And he's no longer going to keep the wrongs wrong. He's going to right them. That's the difference between a call and a response. Now, we can be someone who buries our gift when we meet Christ. Or we can be someone like Zacchaeus who puts it to work. And he did it immediately. Verse 9, and we'll finish. Uh, and Jesus said to him, today... Salvation has come to this house. This next verse, we don't realize it, was, is probably one of the most important verses in the New Testament for the clarity of Jesus' mission. And he restates it right here. Since also he is the son of Abraham, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his purpose. That's his mission. And his mission is our mission. We don't get off mission. So if you ever wonder what the purpose is, it's to seek and to save the lost at how God uniquely gifted you to do. If you're someone who likes to chat and yap all day long, why don't you just yap for God? Okay? If you're someone who just has a broken heart for people who are hurting, don't just watch. Do for God. Don't just go around doing good things either. I, I, I'm, I, I, wow, I'm really spouting out some demands here. <laughs> Where do I get off? <laughs> it's, it's a waste of time. You're going to labor in vain. It's like the rich young ruler. He was laboring in vain, but he couldn't just give this one thing. He couldn't just be all out for the kingdom. Go and do it for God. Don't just do it so you can feel good about doing good. That's essentially sinning and doing good. Do it for God. 
steward what he's gifted you. That's my last demand I'm going <laughs> to make. Wow. Uh, this is why Jesus came ultimately seeking, and he sought all of us out. Remember a few uh, chapters back, we heard the parable, these different little parables of the shepherd who lost a sheep, and he gave everything to seek that shepherd out. That was you. And this woman who lost a coin, and she, and she went out to gave everything to find this coin. And that was you. And then this father who was waiting for this son at the, at the driveway, waiting for his son to return, that was you. And every one of them was a celebration, just like Zacchaeus' house. Every one of them was to rejoice. This is the very heart of God, to seek out his children who've been lost. Let's not leave our brothers and sisters around the world because we're good. It's important that we he hear these values of Jesus and hear these warnings about doing nothing at all. Let's close with a few questions and then we'll pray. How are you investing for God? We should ask that question if you haven't asked it. Am I someone who is going to bury my investment or am I going to put it to work? I bet you, you could go home and write a whole list of all the things that how God uniquely made you. And then say, God, how do you want to use this? What influence do I have around me? How am I going to use this? What do I have at, at, at my, at my, within my reach? All right, I'm going to use it. I bet you could write a list, and I bet you it would be an extensive list, and you might actually feel a little bit better about how you've been made. Do you see yourself as an instrument of his, that he will direct as he needs? And then how will you respond when he calls? Like the rich young ruler? Eh, that's too much. Or like Zacchaeus, who's like, let's party. <laughs> let's do it. I love that Zacchaeus response. I do know this one thing, that burying your treasure, burying your gifts, burying the gospel, you're good and everyone else is fine as long as you got yours, it does not bode well with God. He gives us these little weird stories where we're like, mm. So don't bury it. Put it to work. Invest it. So God can say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, we love you. We thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for uh, Luke 19. And we, I got to thank you for examples like Zacchaeus. He had everything to lose, and, 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 but he got everything in the game. And God, I just thank you for these examples, these parables to remind us that we do not want to be a sterile, useless, doing nothing with our faith. But God, that we're called to go. This time is short. The world is short in the scope of eternity, God, in the gift and the time that we have, God, that you've given us. That there's a whole adventure out there waiting for us, God. There are people to know, people to love on, care for, places to go and bring the gospel, people to pray for. However we have talent, God, help us use it for you to bring your kingdom of love and kindness and grace to the world, which needs it so badly. And God, help anyone in here who has felt that they have no purpose, they wondering what their meaning in life is, God, that they grab a hold of this and they see that they have a purpose that's lifelong, a goal that we shoot for our whole life. 
that will resonate with the life we have inside and bring us to light and life. Nobody in here should walk out of here feeling like they have no purpose. We're the greatest purpose, God. And that's to serve you, follow you, Christ, and to share the good news, to seek and save the lost. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing with me this last song?